Welcome to this episode of the Novara Law Podcast 2022 Year in Review. My name is Jenna Hilgenbrink, Senior Associate Attorney here at Novara Law, and with me today is Adam Kroll, another Senior Associate Attorney. Adam, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you uh, what you do here at Novara Law. Uh, thanks, Jenna. Again, uh, you know, my name is Adam Kroll. I've been doing uh, no fault for about six years now in insurance defense. Um, you know, I primarily handle PIP and BI cases and uh, have been more lately focusing a lot on utilization review and fee schedule. And, you know, thanks for having me today. Absolutely. So um, today we're going to be talking about the case law developments in 2022. I think the biggest one, don't you think, is Andary v. USAA. Um, and of course, if you want to hear the backdrop on Andary, go ahead and listen to our Andary podcast uh, that we've completed last year. But, um, you know, I think we are expecting oral argument to be held in that case in uh, March of this year. But there are some other big case law developments. I think the first one uh, that we're going to talk about today is Encompass Healthcare, PLLC, the Citizens Insurance Company. And this is a published Court of Appeals opinion from November of 2022. Adam, tell us a little bit about the backdrop on that case. Yeah, so Encompass is uh, just recently came out and will definitely come into play for us. And Encompass is really about the formal denial of the insurance carrier and the tolling provision of the one-year back rule. And really, it talks about and specifically addresses what they would consider a formal denial that would end the tolling, which would then keep the one-year back clock uh, from continuing um, to where they have one year to bring suit or to commence action from the from the date of the incurred expense. Um, you know, Encompass uh, found that the subject explanation of benefits wasn't a formal denial because it kind of skated around the issue of they denied in excess of what they were paying. So, of course, we're talking about MCL 53145, um, and this is the one-year back statute. But I guess, you know, how do we know when we have a one-year back issue in one of our cases? Well, first, we know when we look at the claim data service and then the date the complaint was filed. And if the complaint was filed over one year past that date of service, then we know to look uh, deeper into whether or not it's barred by the one-year back rule. And so I think that's kind of the, the tolling issue that was brought up in Encompass Healthcare v. Citizens Insurance Company. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, it was, it was brought up because they did file their complaint uh, over one year after their, uh, date, their claim date of service. However, then the court got into the tolling provision of the one-year back rule and found that the claim was actually tolled until the date they filed litigation. Okay, so the date they filed litigation, but I think there's another date that we need to be on the lookout for, and that's the denial date, right? And what constitutes a denial exactly? What constitutes a denial is the carrier explicitly giving notice to the provider or the patient that they are denying the bill and they need to seek further action. That is really what Encompass went into, and just because they paid some benefits and didn't specifically say the what was not paid was denied, that didn't constitute a denial. So really what constitutes a denial is explicitly explaining to the provider or the patient that the bill is denied and, they, and further action by their part is necessary. Absolutely. And so something like, you know, a partial payment, for example, uh, would that count as a denial? Uh, well, partial payment in itself would not account as a denial. And that's pretty much the, the focus of the Encompass case we're talking about that just came out because they, in Encompass, the carrier made partial payments but did not deny the payments that they did not make in excess of what was already paid. So that was the big issue there. And uh, so partial payments alone do not suffice to make it a formal denial. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't know if this case kind of ignores some of the realities of claims processing, but I mean, if, if for example, you know, I deny 
half of a bill, um, wouldn't that logically, you know, tell you that you need to seek further action from from the insurer? Uh, yes, that is a part of the issue with the, with this case, um, where that yes, if we made partial payments, we're essentially denying the the remainder of the bill that we believe it is not our responsibility. Um, but that's where the denial language really comes in, and you have to be explicit now that if you make a partial payment, the remainder is being denied as it's excess of of our responsibility. Okay, I, I understand. So, so what can our clients do in light of this decision and it being the law of the land today? You know, what can our clients do to be very explicit, maybe in their explanations of benefits or in their explanations of review, and and say something you know that that would cause the provider or the patient to seek further action? Yeah. Well, first, I need to know, you know, from the Encompass case, they didn't provide you know exactly what needs to be said in the denial. They explained that it just needs to be the uh, explicit explicitly indicate that the bill is not being paid and that they need further action. So the, for starters, it needs to say bill denied in excess of what has have been paid if partial payments were made, or it needs to at least say bill denied with the, with the rationale to show the person making the claim that they're not gonna receive payment and they need further action either via additional proof or they need to file their, uh, their court case. Absolutely. And, you know, something like all caps or bold, I've noticed, is something that could be um, particularly helpful even to a judge when they're deciding a one-year back issue. You know, I've had judges ask me things like, you know, how, how does the plaintiff know in the situation that uh, they're not to seek, uh, you know, that they need to seek recourse elsewhere, that they need to, you know, do something about this bill? And I think things like all bold, all caps, those are really helpful pointers, right? Yeah, it'll definitely help because it's hard to, you know, ignore something highlighted on the page when you really draw their emphasis that would be, you know, explicit. You can't just kind of put it at the bottom in a, in a you know, footnote. It needs to be explicit, that bill denied. Maybe they uh, need to be more on the, the very top of the page as opposed to uh, being hidden in the comments, but it just needs to be explicit and indicate the bill is denied in some way or the other to get that tolling uh, clock to stop. All right, I think I understand. And um, you know, there's some there's some other uh, nuances, I suppose, if we were to deny a bill pursuant to utilization review, right? And this is your expertise, so tell me a little bit about what is important in a denial, uh, in terms of a utilization review type of denial. So what's really important for denial on utilization review is the language includes uh, that the bills submitted were reviewed. Uh, in comparison to the appropriate medical standards, which is used by DIFFS. If it's, because that is the premise of utilization review is that we compare the services being claimed by the provider and compare those to the appropriate medical standards to see if they're overutilizing the care, meaning they're maybe giving, they're maybe prescribing one or two more days of physical therapy that's more than necessary based on the appropriate medical standards. So that's big for the denial for utilization review purposes because we can't really, based on the utilization view rules, we have to use the medical standards and not our own, like, we think it's too high. All right, got it. Now uh, to pivot just a little bit to fraud. Um, so moving away from denials and moving into fraud land, um, there were a few uh, MACP fraud cases that came out that I think were really important in 2022. Uh, you know, the first one being um, Williams v. Uh, AAA, it was a published Court of Appeals decision uh, that came down in September of uh, 2022. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the facts of um, that decision and what it meant for MACP fraud cases? Yeah, so in Williamson, uh, there was 
fraud during the discovery process and in the interrogatories, which the carrier tried to dismiss the case based on the fraud that they discovered in uh, during the litigation process. However, uh, in some of the background of that case was the the claimant was deceased and he uh, died after a subsequent accident that's not related to the that litigation, but his estate brought the case on his on the deceased behalf and they answered interrogatories regarding a tenant care, but the answers were false because they were claiming a tenant care and replacement services after the claimant's death. And the statute says that a claim that contains or is supported by a fraudulent insurance act as described by this section, uh, which is MCL 53173A, uh, is ineligible for payment of personal protection insurance benefits under the assigned claims plan. Well, under this statute, uh, this court in Williamson went on to distinguish between a, uh, an insurance claim and claims submitted during litigation. And they found that a fraudulent insurance act committed pre-litigation and in the claim submission was is what bars uh, or makes them ineligible for payment, as opposed to those fraudulent statements that come out during the course of litigation. And so the court really, in Williamson really distinguished between pre and post litigation fraud. And that's that's not new, right? I mean, we've seen this in policy cases, pre-litigation, post-litigation fraud, after Bari was decided, you know, in, in all these other decisions, Haydaw, Williamson, all, all these other decisions that came out in policy context. So I guess what I'm getting at is this isn't new, right? Yeah, you're right. This is not new. Um, it does provide some more light onto the distinguishing between the pre- and post-litigation fraud. And really, it really boils down to that the fraud that we have has to be uh, submitted via a claim before litigation, and that litigation is then commenced on that fraudulent claim. It can't be uh, defended or can't have the defense when we know of the fraudulent claim that's first presented during litigation, which the Williamson Court made clear. Okay. So ultimately, what was the holding in, in Williams v. Triple, Williamson v. AAA? Uh, you know, what, what happened with these parties? So ultimately, the court ruled that the statements made by the estate of the deceased made during litigation did not bar the claim uh, under the fraud statute of the MACP. Uh, they, again, ruled that the fraud defense under MCL 53173A only applies to statements made during pre-litigation claims and not those that are discovered or not those that are submitted after litigation has started. I really thought that Williamson v. AAA was a curious decision, um, especially in light of the MACP statute, um, which, you know, it's clear to me that says that, you know, a claim that contains or is supported by a fraudulent insurance act as described in this subsection is ineligible for payment of personal protection insurance benefits under the assigned claims plan. Right. So, so a claim that is contained or supported by a fraudulent insurance act, I guess, you know, that only applies now if uh, the fraudulent insurance act was submitted pre or post litigation, right? Yes. Right. And essentially, if you look at that statute where it says, keeps referring to the word claim, and there, the court in Williamson specifically distinguished between a, a claim to insurance versus litigation. And yeah. so you get you make the claim first, and then they file suit on that claim. But they're not synonymous. They're not the same thing. It's a lawsuit is different than a claim for benefits, is what they're saying. Yeah, I understand. And um, you know, I think to to muddy the waters even a little bit more, we had the Bakeman v. Citizens decision, which came out in November of 2022. So post Williams. Uh, Williamson, go ahead and tell us a little bit about Bakeman and what it held. 
Yeah. So Bakeman is like, you know, eerily similar to this Williamson case, but just came out on the other side and in favor of the carrier. And in the Bakeman case, uh, just like in Williamson, they were dealing with some fraudulent uh, household replacement services claims and uh, attendant care claims. But in this one, it came to light during a deposition that the attendant care and replacement service forms were fraudulent that were submitted before the lawsuit was filed. They claimed the those fraudulent services before they filed suit. And unlike in Williamson, that court came down and ruled that yes, this is fraud in the fraud in the presenting the claim to the insurance, which was a fraudulent insurance act, which therefore made them ineligible for payment through a servicing insurer assigned by the MACP because the claim the fraudulent claims were submitted pre-suit and in the initial claims process. Got it. So maybe you know maybe the the deciding factor is who the claims are submitted to, right? Are they submitted to the insurance company in support of their claim or are they submitted, you know, in support of litigation, for lack of a better term, right? Yes, really, it boils down to whether or not you learned of the the fraudulent claims in discovery or if they were already submitted pre-litigation to the carrier for payment. Got it. And touching on the very last uh, court case that we have seen in 2022 that we deem as notable, that's Macosta, right? So tell me a little bit about the Macosta decision and what that means uh, for, you know, PIP suits versus provider suits when we see the same accident or the same claimants uh, in multiple cases across different courts. Yeah. So uh, in Macosta, the, mo- the moral of the story is you can't use a judgment from one case to bar a subsequent provider suit. Uh, if the subsequent provider suit is based on an assignment that predates that judgment. Uh, so essentially, you can't win on one case and then use that to win on another case that has an assignment that predates that earlier win. Um, it does make things a little more difficult, uh, but it also does help us out with some assignment arguments that we've been trying to make um, because they're saying that the court, Michigan Supreme Court has said that assignment that predates a judgment that the claimant or that one ruling is they are not in privy with the subsequent provider. Okay, let's back up a little bit. So something that we always used to do is, you know, we get a PIP suit, we get the main suit, and we get a dismissal based on something like fraud, based on something like, you know, something something similar to that, where it's it's something inherent in the claimant's own suit. And then we use that judgment, uh, that win in the PIP suit, and we go and take it to the provider suits, and we say, look, you know, district courts, or look, provider suit courts, uh, you know, we got this dismissal in the PIP suit. We're going to use the same order. And this one, this provider suit should also be dismissed. That's that's how we used to do things, right? Yes, exactly how we used to do things. And I, my real world example is I had, you know, an, an MACP claimant. I had a case dismissed, you know, two years ago because the claimant was a no-show. Didn't participate in his own lit- straight litigation case. Or his own, sorry, his own direct case. Didn't sit for a deposition. Didn't do one iota in discovery. So much so that the court dismissed it without prejudice for his repeated court or violations of court order. And then after that, the f- provider suit started rolling in. Well, with Macosta, I can't use this uh, court order dismissing with prejudice in the claimant's main suit to bar the provider suits, even though, uh, every, as we all believe, the provider stands in the shoes of the claimant. So if the claimant isn't covered, then the provider isn't as well. However, with this Macosta, I now need a new ruling to show that they're not entitled to it based on either the non-cooperation or the claimant itself is not eligible for benefits. So essentially, you might have to do things again in each case. That makes sense. I mean, I think it gives district courts the opportunity to make the judgment for themselves or it gives, you know, say say it's over $25,000 and you're in circuit court. You know, it gives the individual provider courts the opportunity 
uh, to make the decision for themselves. But I guess we are kind of relitigating the same thing over and over again. Isn't that right? Yeah. So now I'm uh, once again, you know, trying to get this claimant's debt. I have to, you know, jump all these hurdles to try to find the person again. And it, it kind of uh, makes it difficult because they don't have a they don't have any skin in the game. They are they they're not eligible for benefits as the court already ruled. But now I have to go and do all the same efforts again in the provider cases, um, which does make life a little more difficult and sometimes a little more expensive for you know our clients. However, uh, it there is some room for improvement. Uh, and there's some other ways we can, you know, kind of combat this, but it, there is a good precedent set for uh, assignments, and I believe it could be used in the near future for these claimants that are claiming bills subject to assignment in their own case to get them dismissed from the claimant's direct case and only make the carrier pay the provider themselves. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that assignment nuance that was in uh, the McCossett decision. Tell me, like, what that looks like in the real world. Yeah, so on the cost of the the crux of the course the court's ruling was that a uh, the subsequent provider suit was based on an assignment, and so when the carrier got the uh, the win against the claimant or in another provider suit, uh, they said they can't use that judgment all because the other provider had an assignment, and so we're, they're saying because this, the that assignment the provider had, they're not in privy with that other court uh, case in that ruling, so they can't be bound against them. Um, and so with that being said by the court, we want to then use that uh, for when the direct claimant comes and says, all right, you owe me bills from all these providers that he has assignments for. Well, we always tell them that, no, we don't owe you. We owe your your provider uh, based on your own assignment. And that sometimes it's not good enough for them. Uh, and so they keep wanting to claim the bills and it makes the resolution harder. But with Macosta, we can argue, we believe, that only the provider can claim this bill because even if I were to pay you claimant because of this assignment, I'm still subject to another lawsuit by the provider because we're not in privy to this judgment if they were to dismiss the case if we tried to settle it. So it's really trying to protect our clients from unnecessary subsequent provider suits after we possibly already resolved, thought we already resolved all the bills with the claimant directly. Yeah, I think that's a really important nuance to explore in future litigation. Um, you know, But kind of getting away from case law and getting into the Michigan court rules, I think, you know, an interesting Michigan court rule that was developed in 2022 was MCR 2407 and 2408, which deal with Zoom court, which is something that we're both, <clears throat> I think, very familiar with, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, we spend, um, you know, our days in, in Zoom court. We're not um, going to the physical courthouse very often anymore, but I think that's kind of here to stay now. Um, <clears throat> basically, 2407 and 2408 are for civil cases. Um, and there's a presumption that most things will be done remotely in civil cases now. Um, there's going to be two different rules, uh, some for district court and some for circuit court. Of course, things like trials and things that require live testimony um, will not be done via Zoom more often than not. Um, however, you know, I, I don't know. What do you think about this, this Zoom court era that we're in in this post-COVID you know, uh, COVID world? You know, it's definitely not the same as being in person, but uh, Zoom court does have it, uh, plenty of benefits. Uh, for more of the routine, you know, court conferences that maybe you don't need to drive, you know, half hour each way for, you know, opposing counsel and us. Um, I do think there are benefits. It's, uh, they're, in, they're trying to establish some a better practice. It makes our lives a little bit easier for sure. And there's still uh, courts have been doing in-person, you know, arguments and certain conferences. Um, so it's not it's going to be completely virtual. Um, but I do think it's a good uh, it's going to be a good tool for us and just being or having attorneys being on the handle more um, and being more places than once. Um, and yeah, I think it's actually going to be good for us. 
you know, I think it makes things more efficient, don't you? I, I can be in Wayne County Circuit Court at 10 and Monroe County Circuit Court at 1030 or 11 um, when maybe I probably couldn't have done that if, if we were in person the whole time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I always hate having or getting coverage just because, you know, I always want to be in, in on my cases for the clients. Um, and at the same time, I think it's more efficient because uh, if I'm on my computer, I have everything at my disposal. Court asked me, hey, when did this happen? Or, or do we have any other cases? Or what about this date? Are you, or what if we schedule it here? It's all at your fingertips on your computer, um, which is really nice. Uh, as opposed to going in person, you're only you're stuck with what you bring. Um, and, you know, you have all your resources at your uh, at your fingertips during a court hearing, which, as you know, as an attorney, is very, very helpful. Yeah, it's incredibly useful. I can attest to that. And I think the exception for jury trials is particularly important. Um, you know, we want those to be in person to see live testimony. And I, I think it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more fun when, when you're, when you're in person sometimes, yeah. so there's a little bit of a, a, a novelty to it now, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Any in-person argument, I, I feel is always better than a zoom argument, uh, but there's still a place for zoom court and there's still going to be a place as the rules make clear for in-person conferences and jury trials, especially. All right. So thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate the conversation. Um, if anybody has questions um, or wants to reach out to you about this podcast or about anything else, how can they reach you? Uh, email is great. Uh, my email is amk at navarralaw.com. You can also uh, look me up on our website, navarralaw.com. All my info should be there. Um, and yeah, if you have any questions about you know these newer cases, utilization review or fee schedule things that have been happening, uh, please feel free to reach out to me. I work on it a lot and I'll be happy to talk to anybody about it. All right. And you can reach me, Jenna Hildenbrink at gkh at navarralaw.com. That's all the time we have today. Uh, we hope you learned something on this episode of the Novara Law Podcast. Check us out next time on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just search the words Novara Law Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.